we're going to talk about a sicha that the Rebbe spoke on a on a Rosh Hashanah once, because always the second night of the the end of Rosh Hashanah, the end of the second day of Rosh Hashanah, the Rebbe would make a farbringin, and at that farbringin he would speak different ideas of Torah. So this is a talk that he spoke in the year of nineteen seventy six, and. Um, Actually, it was seven. It was the Tavshin Lamed Vav, but it's the end of in the English dates. It would be the end of nineteen seventy five, and it was published for Rosh Hashanah Tavshin Mem, which would have been nineteen seventy nine, and it was given out as a booklet for Rosh Hashanah, and it's also marked Rosh Hashanah slash hyphen the sixth of Tishrei. Why the sixth of Tishrei? Because the entire theme of this talk is all about the woman, the famous woman, Chana. And the sixth of Tishrei was the, is the yard site of the Rebbe's mother. So it was kind of like in a dedication at the same time it came out with the same idea. The Rebbe's mother passed away on the sixth of Tishrei in 1964 on, the, on a Shabbos afternoon. Of that year, of 1964. But in any case, so many years, a number of years later, the Rebbe spoke this talk. And the theme is about the Haftorah that we read in synagogue on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. So in order to appreciate this talk, I want to give us a recap of the actual story that we read in the Haftorah. It's a very moving story. And a lot of uh, people... That struggled, that struggled or struggle with their fertility issues, they take it very, you know, to heart the story of the first day of Torah because really it's the story of a woman named Chana who had a issue. She could didn't have children for many years, and the story is printed in the in the book of the prophets of the book of Samuel, of the book of Shmuel Hanavi. And the reason why it's printed there is because this is actually the beginning to the story of how Samuel the prophet comes around. Where does he come from? Where, what's the background to his story? So his book begins with that part of the story of the man named Elkanah. And Elkanah had two wives. I'm, I'm just going to run through the this story. I'm not going to go through all the details of the story because we're not going to teach the story now. We're only going to talk about one part of the story, which is a general theme. So the story goes that Elkanah, who had two wives, he had one wife's name was Chana, and a second wife, his, her name was Penina. In biblical law, you're allowed to have more than one wife. It's just a rabbinical uh, prohibition that we don't have more than one wife these days for another discussion for another time. So Penina has a number of children, but Chana is barren and does not have any children. Now, of course, this makes Chana extra sad because everything that happens, all the shopping that takes place, all the clothes that they buy, all the gifts you buy, all the Hanukkah gifts and everything goes to the Panina's children. But she is barren, doesn't have any children. When they go up to Shiloh, which was the place where the Mishkan, the tabernacle that traveled through the desert with Moshe and all the Jews, the 40 years in the desert, later comes into Israel. Eventually, it, 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 this traveling temple is settled in a place called Shiloh, which it's there today. It's still in the, 
what they call today uh, Yehuda v'Shamran. It's you could go there today. The remnants there is uh, you could see a lot of very interesting stuff of that place. So, anyways, in that place, Ashilo is where the temple is. So Elkano would go with his family there on the holidays at different times. So one year. It, we're gonna, soon going to see in the talk exactly when this was when she cried, but the Rebbe brings from opinions that this story happened on a Rosh Hashanah. She was there and she went goes to the temple and she starts to cry and cry and cry. Maras Nefesh, she cries bitterly and this uh, and she makes all these promises to God that if she has uh, a child, she will dedicate this child to be given like as a gift to God. They'll be totally a holy child. And Eli, the high priest, Eli is the, the Eli, the Kohen, some say it was the high priest. Uh, it was sure, for sure a Kohen. And, and Eli, the Kohen, who was in charge then of the temple, he, he was actually appointed that day to be in charge of uh, the, all the Jewish people. And he sees this woman crying her heart out, hysterical, and he controls himself, he waits, and when she finally, he finally finds the right time, and he says to her, lady, what are you doing being drunk here in the temple? Like, it's not an appropriate place to have a drunker here in the temple. This is a sacred place. And Hannah replies back to him, and she says, no, my master. She says, well, I never drink any wine or beer. I never drink any of this stuff. What you're seeing is just my soul pouring myself out to Hashem. But don't you know, judge me wrong and so on. Eli realizes the sincerity of this woman and he gives her a blessing that, that she should have a child. Sure enough, she has a child. She names the kid Shemuel or Samuel. And after she finishes the stage of nursing, she brings the kid and tells Eli, you could raise him here in the temple. I want him to be completely dedicated to God. And that's how he's brought up there and eventually becomes Samuel the prophet. So that's on one foot. You could check the story later in full detail. It's a fascinating story. The more you're well-versed in it, the more you'll appreciate the reading of the Torah on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. But here's the talk that the Rebbe has on this theme. Since the first day of Rosh Hashanah, we read the beginning of the book of Samuel, over there it says the story of Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, and the, the crooks of the story is, the nutshell of the story is, that first, as the verse said, Hannah does not have children. After that, through her prayers, being at the temple in Shiloh, she becomes pregnant with a son who's Shmuel the prophet. Now, the intention of reading the Haftorah on the holidays, like all Haftorahs, which is the extra part that we read from the books of the prophets besides the Parsha itself, is just like the reading of the Torah, which is that there should be a lesson. That's the point of reading this, especially in public. The point of reading is it that there should be a takeaway, a lesson for all of us, that a Jew that learns this should be able to take a takeaway lesson from what they heard, the reading of the Torah and the Haftorah. And every Shabbos, they could take a lesson from this. And also on the holidays. And therefore, it's this, it also applies in our context here as well. That even though the reason why it was chosen to read this story on Rosh Hashanah is because, as many of the commentators say, Rashi brings down the Ran and several others brought down on the Shulchan Aruch, that Chana became pregnant on Rosh Hashanah. 
even though that's the obvious reason why we read it, but for certainly it also contains a lesson and many lessons in the service of a Jew on Rosh Hashanah. And not just Rosh Hashanah, even general lessons that we could take from this. And since the point of the service that brought the pregnancy of Hannah, this blessing for her, is the main theme of the Torah, and that's connected to Rosh Hashanah, so we see from here that her prayer that happened in Shiloh, it's it only it's a logical conclusion to make that the main emphasis that we can learn from this and the Haftorah is regarding our service, how we serve God on Rosh Hashanah, and we learn it from the story of Chana. Especially according to the opinion that's brought out in the Shalah, that the prayers of Chana also happened on Rosh Hashanah. In other words, it's not just she came pregnant on Rosh Hashanah, but the prayer. The whole story happened also on Rosh Hashanah. So to get to this lesson, we have to understand some important details of the story. First, Eli the Kohen assumes that she is a shikura, shikur is a, a drunken, that she's drunk. Why did he think that she was drunk? Because her prayers was in a way, as the verse says, Midaberis Aliba. She was kind of like talking to her heart, like it like almost wasn't coming out clearly in a way. And that made Ailey say to her, and he expressed it with these harsh words, Admasai Tishtakri, until when are you gonna be drunk? Etc. And Hannah answered to him, and she said, Lo yadaini, no, my master, I'm just pouring out my soul in front of God, etc. So that's the crux of the story. She's crying hysterically, and he's saying to her, you drunker, and she says, no, I'm not drunk. So on this, the Rebbe asks three straightforward, simple questions here. Number one, how is it possible that Ailey, the Kohen should have such an extreme mistake. Like, it's a huge mistake. Instead of noticing that she's praying and pouring out her soul, he should think to the extent that she's a drunker. How does that happen that Ailey, Ailey is obviously was a very the holy person, and the Ailey the Kohen, how could he accuse her to be a drunker? That's number one. Number two, even if we could explain how it was possible that he should be able to make such a kind of mistake, it would still not be understood. Why does the Torah need to record such a conversation? Why is that relevant to us? That Ailey accuses her that she's drunk and she has to answer that. Like That seems like a total negative part of the story. Why would that be relevant to record this in the Torah? We have a rule that in the Talmud brings a rule that even to mention the impurity of an animal, the verse refrains from using negative language because it says that says a behema tahora and she'inena tahora. It says regarding the purity of non-pure animals. So it says the animal that's pure and the animal that's that's not pure. And the Talmud calculates eight extra letters that is being used in the Torah in order not to say the bad word. 
of, of the non-kosher animal. So we say the pure one and the not pure one, instead of just calling it a temea. It's there to teach us that you don't say words that are not nice. So certainly, Lahavdo, we can't even really compare, but to Eli the Kohen, why would we record what he said, something negative, accusing her that she's drunk, if she ends up saying she's not really drunk, why would we have to know this? The Torah usually avoids to say anything negative. Number three, since he accuses her, assumes her to be a drunken, why does it say that he waited before he spoke up? He like held his mouth quiet until he spoke up to say, hey, you're a drunker. What are you doing here in the, in the temple drunk? He should have right away stopped her in the middle of the prayers and said, hello, you're in a synagogue. You're in the holiest place. You're in the synagogue of all synagogues, you know? Why didn't he speak up right away? In other words, if he's justified to say that she's a drunker, he should have stopped her immediately. So those are the Rebbe's three questions. So again, how could he have made such a big mistake? Number one. Number two, even if he made such a big mistake by calling her a drunker, why does it have to be recorded in the Torah? We don't use extra negative talk. And three, why did he wait to speak up to her to tell her that you can't be a drunker here in the, in the temple? So from all of this, from all these questions, we kind of have a conclusion here that Ailey truthfully did not see her as a drunker in the simple sense of what we think as a drunker. In other words, when we accuse somebody to be drunk, we assume, how did you become drunk? You drank too much wine or some other kind of alcohol and that's how you became drunk. But we must assume here that he did not really think that she was drunk from alcohol. She was being, she was drunk from the way she was praying. She was like carried away with her prayer. That means that the prayers of Hannah was in a way, like the verse says, Hear Bissa. She prayed ex- ex- excessively. And praying too much is also considered to be something that's not desirable. When you're standing in front of God, in the house of God, too much is not tasteful either. It's all, it could come across as if you know, like you don't believe what's happening. Like you have to say it again, have to say it again. There's nobody listening, you know. Too much could come across as negative. And Hannah's response to him is that I'm pouring out my soul in front of God. When you see me here, Basal Isbal, I'm, I'm excessive prayer. It's connected with my pouring out of my soul, of my terrible plot. It's not a thing of drunkness of prayer. On the opposite. She's saying is that my prayer is actually a very desirable high level of prayer. And this is going to be the connection of her prayers to Rosh Hashanah. Because the question that you seem like you're, you're a drunker, and she has to answer, so the discussion between Eli, the Kohen, and Hannah 
is regarding the way of praying to God. Well, when we talk about the way of praying to God, this is going to be very important to us because the general concept of the prayer of Hana is going to be the important general concept in the way we all pray on Rosh Hashanah as we will talk soon. So in other words, the way this played out of Eli speaking to her like this, you're too much prayer. And she's coming back and answering, no, I'm just pouring out my, my soul. This is going to be important to us in how we pray on Rosh Hashanah. Now, let's analyze a little bit the prayers of, of the high holidays. And that's what the Rebbe wants to do here now. He wants to help us understand what does our prayers on Rosh Hashanah supposed to look like. So he says, when you think about it, the prayers of Rosh Hashanah actually have a, two contradictory themes in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah. On one hand, Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. It's the day of judgment for all your personal needs. The needs of the human. Your spiritual needs and your material needs. How do we know that the theme of Rosh Hashanah is about the personal needs of a person spiritually and materially? So this is already discussed elsewhere in many commentaries of a verse that's in the book of Tehillim in chapter 81, over there there's a verse, right after the verse, Tiku that you should blow a shofar on Rosh Hashanah. When should you blow the shofar? Tiku when should I blow it? You should blow it on the month where the moon is, on the time when the moon is concealed. The, Mish, the Talmud says, the Mishnah says, when is the only holiday, Jewish holiday when the moon is concealed? The only one Jewish holiday that the moon is concealed is Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur is on the 10th day of the month. Pesach and Sukkot is on the 15th day of the month. Even Shavuos is on the 6th day of the month. None of them are on Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh is the time when you don't see the moon. Right? So that's regarding that. So the next verse over there says, in, again, in chapter 81, verse 5, so it says there like this. On that day when you're going to blow the shofar, it says, Ki That day is a choik for Israel. And it's mishpat leloke Yaakov. What does this verse mean? What does the word choik mean? It should be a choik Yisrael. So we bring down from the book of Mishlei in the, in, in, um, from King Solomon, over there he says to God, God, please, I'm asking you for two things. And one of the things he asks him for, he says, I should get bread to satiate me. That's what I need. I need basic food to live. So over there it says, Hatrifeni lechem chuki. That I should be able to take in, give me bread that will fill me. So chukim, satiation means food it's basically like my mazonos, my food that will fill me up. So when the verse says that on this day of Rosh Hashanah, you, you get judged for the chayk, for how much food, how much parnasa, livelihood you should have to be able to buy the food for Israel gets done on this day. Then the second half of the verse says that mishpat, mishpatei, it should be judgment, leilokei for the God of Jacob. That means, when it says for the God, meaning for the spiritual things. So it's this day of Rosh Hashanah 
that it's the day of judgment for all the needs of a person, your spiritual and your material. And therefore, we pray, and it's for this reason that in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, in the prayer book, in the Machsar, we mention prayers for all the personal things you need. Children, health, Parnassah. And also we ask for success in all my spiritual endeavors. So that's one theme of Rosh Hashanah. But then on the other hand, we have a whole different kind of theme. On the other hand, it's knowing that the whole point of Rosh Hashanah is establishing and reincarnating God as our king. We make God again our king. Every year in Rosh Hashanah, we come to the shul and we emphasize dozens of times through the Rosh Hashanah prayers, God as our king. We say Hamelech, Hamelech Hakadosh. We say so. Then we say Shetam Lichuni Aleichem. God says, "Make me your king. If you make me your king, then I can look after you for all the things you need." The Chazan, and we say it all in our prayers on Rosh Hashanah. You say Meloich Ala Olam Ala Aretz. He should keep. He should be the king. Meloich Ala Olam Kulei Bichvaydecha. He should be the king, a ruler of the entire world with his glory. Another verse, Melech HaKolaretz, he should be the king of the whole world. That means coronating God as the king and accepting God to be your king. How do you accept God to be your king? It's through total humility, it's the total uh, uh, humbleness to stand in front of the king and say, I'm willing to do whatever you want, just please be the king. That's what it means. You kind of give yourself over with a complete nullification, that I'm a non-existence. Whatever you say, king, I'm willing to follow. To the point that you, when you're saying this to the king, you're saying is that I am putting away any of my own desires. Everything is going to be the way you want it, king. Well, when you think about this, this seems to be totally two contradictory points. On one hand, you're saying I have to be completely a nothing in front of the king. I'm not even supposed to think about my own needs, anything. I'm saying I'm willing, I'm giving myself over to the king. That means even spiritual things. I'm giving myself over to the king. Whatever he wants, that's what I'm going to do. Especially when it comes to material things. But it seems like a complete contradiction. But when you give yourself over so much to the king that your opinions don't have any say it's like what a famous Zohar, the Rebbe puts this in a, in a uh, square brackets, and he brings down from the Zohar, he says the following, that the Zohar says like this, anybody that asks on Yom Kippur for your own food, and you ask God, forgive me, so I should have Parnassa, forgive me, I should have life, right? And write me in the books for good life. The Zohar says that you're actually speaking like a dog. That's the word he uses. Why? Because a dog is always saying, have, 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 give me, give me, give me. All it wants is give me. So if you're talking like that, only thinking about yourself, then you're not thinking about the divine presence about God. So if that's the whole purpose of, come to, of coming to pray on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, is just to be able to say, gimme, give gimme, give I want to have money, I want to have health, I want all these material things. He says, then you're talking like a dog. 
But on the other hand, look if you look into the prayer books, it's in the prayer book that our sages prepared for us. And they explain that part of these reasons why we put in material requests in the prayers is that God should fulfill us of our requests. So it's understood that asking God is not just close my eyes and ask for whatever effort, like with a blanket statement, just whatever you want, God. Since Hashem asked that we should pray in our prayers of Rosh Hashanah, we should say, please give me my personal needs. That means I'm obviously doing this for the sake of God's calling. But that means that on one hand, you have to want to have the intention and part of your prayers should be that Hashem wants that you should, he should give you, you should ask and he should give you your personal needs. But for that, I have to be in existence of a person. I have to feel my body, feel my needs. But on the other hand, my whole theme is I should make God as a king, which is a demand that I'm a non-existence. So which is the right way? It seems like a total contradiction. On one hand, Rosh Hashanah, the theme is I'm a nobody. It's all about just making God the king and whatever God wants, we're just going to be upon. And the other hand, we're saying, no, you have to know your needs. You have to know what's your problems, what's the issues of life, and then ask God for these things because you get judged on that day for this. Right? So... For this, he says, we could ask the same question regarding the, our prayers all year round. We could ask a similar question. There's a rule that when you pray every day, so you, you know how you, you build up in your prayers. The high peak of your prayers is the silent prayer. When you get to the silent prayer, you're supposed to stand like as if I'm standing in front of a king. And there's a lot of detailed laws to that. You back up, you back, go backwards three steps, then you go frontwards three steps. You keep your feet together. You're not supposed to say the prayer loud, so say it pretty quiet so you don't disturb anybody else's concentration. You're supposed to feel as if I'm standing in front of a king. You're not allowed to make any emotions during the silent prayer. It's a very serious time. To the point that the Talmud says that if somebody asks you a question while you're praying the silent prayer and you wink your eye in a response, you know, yes, no, like just a wink, not even saying it, just a wink of an eye, the punishment is that you're supposed to become a head shorter. Meaning, the punishment is the opposite of life. That's how harsh it is. Because you're supposed to think of it. Imagine a person is standing in front of the king. And he's talking to the king. And all of a sudden somebody says, hey, calls you and asks you something. You're going to say, hey, king, one sec. Let me just send that guy a text message. You wouldn't come out of the palace alive. It would be totally disrespectful. So when you're saying your silent prayer, you're standing in front of the king. And nevertheless... In that prayer of the silent prayer, when you're standing in front of the king, where you're supposed to be completely null and void, part of the prayers are, you know how there's 18 blessings there? 12 of them are about personal requests. Give me wisdom, God. Give me health. Give me food. Give me judgment. On and on. 12 personal requests there. 
So we have the same question. On one hand, you're supposed to be standing in front of the king with such a trembling awe. Not even to wink an eye. On the other hand, you're asking for personal requests. So the Rebbe says that it's obvious that we could differentiate between the prayers of Rosh Hashanah and the prayers of all year round. Why? So let's use this logic. All year round, you have already established God to be your king. Rosh Hashanah, you made him your king. Right? We coronated God to be the king. Now that he's your king, all year round, he has to look after his subjects. He has to make sure that you have all your needs. So that's why you could talk about your personal needs all year round. Because when am I supposed to feel like I'm in a non-existence? Only when I'm standing right in front of the king, when I'm making him the king, basically. But the rest of the year could be a a little bit different. But when I'm coronating the king, then there's for sure no room for anything. So we have the question is, how could I in such a time on Rosh Hashanah when I'm standing in front of the king, making him the king and saying, you're God, you're the king and I'm enough, I'm just your subject, I'm your pawn. How could I use out that time to ask for personal things? So to explain this, he, we go into this explanation the following. When a Jew asks for their personal needs on Rosh Hashanah, it has to be that I'm not asking for my personal needs because of me. It's not that I want these personal needs. It's only that since, oh God, I'm making you the king of what? Of this world, which has so many material things in this world. So I'm asking you, God, for these material needs in a continuation of you being my king. In order that it should be able to fulfill the saying that we say in Rosh Hashanah, be the king over the world, of the entire world with your glory. So the meaning, the whole world is going to be in a way that it's going to recognize God as the complete sovereignty, the complete ruler of the world. How is that? through the entire world, with all the material things, will be recognizing that God's the king. And the whole world will be a dwelling place for God. So for that, I'm asking God for my needs. So why am I asking Hashem for all these material things? It's in order to help God be the king over the entire world. That's what I'm asking for. And since every Jew has a drive to search for any godly, holy sparks that are connected to your soul. We learned about this many times before. That when God created the world, there was the, 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 one of the things that happened was that there was these chips from the world of Tohu that fell across the whole world. There were 288 uh, sparks. That's the word we use in, in the Kabbalistic terms. These sparks that scattered around the whole world. So by us going to these sparks and elevating it and using out this material place for a spiritual reason, you're elevating those lost sparks. Unfortunately, those sparks also spread out into sparks that cause more sparks. So many sparks, with 288. So anyway, the point is, and it says that in Egypt, we already purified 210 of those. So we're really left with 78. And we already know by now already we did them all. But the point is that every person's soul schleps you 
to certain sparks that are more connected to your soul to go there and get those holy sparks out and elevate them. So that means I need the material world for that. And that's why you're asking Hashem that you should give me all the things that I need in order that I can use out the world in a spiritual way, that the whole world will recognize that you are the king of the whole world comes out that when I'm asking for my personal requests in the Rosh Hashanah, it's not because I'm mixing in my own feeling of me, me, my, my existence. Because I'm asking this for the sake of God. And that comes because I'm so humble to God that I care for God's rulership of the whole world. That's why I'm asking for all my personal requests. That means this whole idea is connected with the essence of my soul. Because the essence of my soul wants to do what the essence of what God wants, which is to be the king of the whole world. So just like the whole point of making a dwelling place for God to dwell in this world called the Deir Batachtainim, as we spoke about that God desired to have this world in order to have a dwelling place where he could live in this world, and that happens through our work, that means that through a Jew serving God in this world, so you need to have the world, I need to have all the things of the world. So in the essence of my soul, I don't have anything else that I'm interested in other than connecting to God, to attach myself and become one with Hashem. So it's understood, from this we understand, that when you ask for personal requests on the holiday, it's in order to fulfill the greater plan of Hashem, which is connected with the essence of our soul to reveal God as the King. So that sounds like a very nice spiritual goal that that's why you're asking for your stuff. But the Rebbe was very down to earth as well. And he understood his flock, all of us. And the Rebbe asks the following question. He says, you know, these personal requests that you ask on Rosh Hashanah, that the sages instituted to put it into the Nusach, in the the version of of the prayers that we have on the holidays, was written for every Jew. Meaning every Jew, no matter what level situation you're in. But he says, come on. That's like, come on, that means like in English, you know. Who are you kidding? Everybody knows the truth about who you are and where you're holding in life. When you ask for some personal requests, are you asking that only so that I could serve God with all my personal requests? Even spiritual things. Is it all because I'm trying to help God's glory across the world? And it's not because of any other reason. He says, at the end of the day, many people, we are in a very confined, difficult situation of life. So I'm asking God to fill my void that I feel in me. And really, that's the whole point in the, in the blessings of the prayers that you say to God, heal the sick. Bring down the rain. These are words we use in our prayers. So when you say that, that's because you may have a real issue of void in your life. And you know, has that, you know how the saying goes? Everybody has some kind of void of pain that we carry with us that we want God to help us with. The only people, that's what they say, it's not in the Sikhar, but I think it's obvious. The only people that don't have Tsaris are the people that you don't know well enough. Right? Because everybody has Tsaris. So he's saying is, everybody knows the truth of why you're really praying. So when you're going to say, 
that on Rosh Hashanah, if, if it would be the case, that on Rosh Hashanah we would say, no talking about any material needs. I want you to become spiritual on this day. Only talk about God to be the king. Okay. Maybe you could work on yourself spiritually to hit that level. So then you wouldn't have a question. But since we're talking about a time, as the expression is, Kiruv Hamor El which means the source comes close to the spark, meaning that every Jew is fitting to, to awaken yourself and make a, a, a spiritual shake to become close to God. So I may say that I could forget about my material needs. You know, it, the truth is, when we all go to shul, a little bit, we forget about our material needs. It's not as painful when I'm sitting home and dwelling in it, you know? So, you could focus on God being the king. But, look at the reality. In the prayers, it actually says that every single Jew should have both sides here in your prayers. You're also supposed to think about your personal needs, which means to think about yourself. So how could we ask both sides. On one hand, I'm telling you, don't think about anything. Think only about God being the king. On the other hand, right in the Rosh Hashanah prayers, it talks to you about your material needs. So how could we expect both contradictory things from the same person, from every one of us? So to appreciate this, the Rebbe brings down here a, a revolutionary insight that the Baal Shem Tov taught us. Beautiful, beautiful insight. The Baal Shem Tov took a verse from the book of Tehillim and he read it and he taught us how, how it should be read. It's a verse in chapter 107 in the Tehillim, 107 verse 5. Over there, the author says like this, Re'evim gam tzameim. Hungry as well as thirsty. When we went into the desert, when we left Egypt, so hungry as well as thirsty, nafsham bahem atov. Their soul grew faint within them. So this situation was so dire. We're hungry and thirsty. And our soul is like wrapped up in this. Said the Baal Shem Tev like this. <laughs> the beautiful thing. Once you hear this, you live with it forever. Says the Baal Shem Tev like this. When a person is hungry or thirsty, and you're chalosh and you want to eat something, you want to drink something, you know why that happens that you're hungry and thirsty? It's because your soul is hungry and thirsty. <laughs> Unbelievable idea. He learns this from this verse here because the verse says hungry and thirsty and your soul is wrapped up in this. So he says it's because it's because your soul feels this hunger and thirsty. That's why you feel hungry and thirsty. That's an amazing thing. That means your soul, why? What's, what's, your, what's your soul hungry for? Your soul is not hungry for a piece of bread. Obviously not. Your soul is hungry hungry and thirsty for something spiritual. What? Your soul wants to get that holy spark that's lost somewhere and to rectify it, to elevate it, to fix it. That's what the soul wants to do. It's a spiritual thing. The soul is gravitating to, 
crunch its thirst, to quench its thirst, right? That's what the soul wants to do. Ah, now I know why my body feels hungry. It's my soul's hunger that's being now expressed since I'm not feeding my soul properly. Therefore, my body now feels the hunger too. So if you ever want to know why in the middle of the night or middle of the day or middle of nowhere, you just had lunch an hour ago. Why are you so thirsty? Why are you so hungry? It's because your soul is so thirsty. Welcome Spielman's. Just in time for the hunger section. Why are you hungry? Because your soul is hungry. Now, based on this idea of the Baal Shem Tov, that your body is hungry because your soul is hungry, your soul is hungry to achieve its spiritual things, therefore your body now feels that same hunger because the soul didn't get fed. He says, now we can understand in our context here with the story of Rosh Hashanah. This that a Jew is asking not just asking, begging, tachnunim, we, we pour out our hearts that Hashem should give you all your material and your spiritual needs, even though on the external side of things, it's because you really do need things. You have issues with banai, chayim, zainai for children, family things, health things, parnasa things. But the truth is, the depth of it is. Why is it that I really want this stuff? Why am I asking for this stuff? It's because there's a spiritual thirst, yearning, desire going on over here. And that's why my soul is, being, is pouring out. So the hunger of the soul is, needs to get fed. To be able to serve and do what Hashem wants. To make a dwelling place for God here. And on the contrary, this alone that we see that a Jew... Awake, it's very fascinating. This. If you ever look in the shul, maybe it's hard to see it from your seat, but I see it from my seat a lot. When, when you see people praying in the shul, so when they talk about, like, okay, now we want to make God to be the king. Okay, Baruch, Kavon, you say all these things about the Melech, the king. People are very into it. They feel spiritual. But then when you, there's a certain prayer called Nisana Taikif. It's one of the most heart-wrenching, pulling prayers on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's the prayer that we say that it's Rosh Hashanah, we get inscribed, and Yom Kippur, you get sealed. Who's going to live and who's going to die? Who by fire? Who by water? Right? Who by strangulation? Who by stoning? So we go through a lapidation, I think is the, the stoning word they use. But the point is, we go through this thing, right? It's a very somber, very spiritual people. A lot of times, even people that like to go home a little early, they like to stay for that prayer. Because if you understand a little bit about the machser, that's like a real highlight prayer. But it's fascinating. We find, and he brings it down in the Sikhaher, that we find that people are more awakened, like, you know, take, take, they get more spiritual during that prayer from the depth of their heart, a lot more than when they say the words that God should be the king of the whole world. From here we see the truth of this whole idea. It's because the soul is so hungry, that's why our body is being affected from this and our body is getting so hungry and thirsty. And that's why we're taking our bodily needs so serious. It's an extension of the real serious thing that your soul is thirsty. So in other words, even though on the revealed side of things, it looks like 
that while the neshama is in the body, while the soul is in the body, all the worldly things are much closer to you. You feel much more connected to the material things, much more than the spiritual spiritual things. But the deep truth is, why is it like that, that you feel that close to the material things? It's because the ultimate true intention of the essence of God itself is to have a dwelling place on this world. And therefore, you feel it like that. And therefore, you're awakened in your requests, in the deep of your quest, and you get, and you shake by this. Because your whole soul trembles. It, it, it makes a move and wants to serve God and wants to be able to have everything I own should be part of the picture that God should govern over everything that I have. God should be the melech ala oilam kulei bichvaydecha. It should be a melech, the king's sovereignty over the entire world with his glory. So now, by understanding this whole piece of this talk, that the whole point of Rosh Hashanah, seemingly it seems like, a, let, let's summarize the point. Seemingly it seems like a contradiction. On one hand, the whole theme of the prayers of Rosh Hashanah is to make God and the king. On the other hand, we have the total opposite the theme of Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment where you want to ask God for all your material things. Well, which one is it? Am I quiet, humble in front of the king? I want you to be the king at all for anything. And I'm a nothing existence, you be the king. Or is it all about me? I need this, I need this, I need that. So he gave us to understand that it's not a contradiction. When you're asking for your personal stuff, it's not you. It's not your personal stuff. It's your stuff in order to serve God. It's to fulfill the greater will. So yes, you feel it and you ask it and you may not feel the spiritual part. That's, a, that's understandable. We get that. But don't feel left out because you have to understand the point of what the Baal Shem Tov taught us. That the only reason why your body realizes all these things that it's missing and hungry for, it's because the real bigger plan, there's a spiritual plan. There are sparks to make holy. There are things in this world we have to elevate. Now, by understanding this point, how it's not a contradiction, the two seemingly contradictory ideas of Rosh Hashanah, now we can come back to our story of the Haftorah, of the prayer, and the discussion of Eli, the Kohen, accusing Chana of being drunk, and Chana saying, I'm not drunk, I'm just pouring out my soul. This is what we understand now, why we say the whole story of the Haftorah, of the story of Chana on Rosh Hashanah. Together, we also mention the words of Eliyah Cohen, Ad Masai Teshtak, until when are you going to be drunk? Remember, we asked the question, why did the, we have to record the negativity of him accusing her drunk? And then she says, I'm not drunk. Why do we have to report such a thing in the Torah? We, I feel the big news, even in the negativity of an impure animal, the verse tries to avoid using words. So here and now we can appreciate and understand the discussion and why it's recorded. Ailey's, Ailey the Cohen, his complaint was, and this is where he differed at first with Hanum. He said that while you're praying and you're standing lifting Hashem in front of God, and not just anywhere in front of God, you're in front of the Holy of Holies, you're in the temple. Well, in this circumstance, in front of the temple itself, there should be nothing here besides God itself. You're in front of the king itself. There's no space or no tolerance to be into any material needs. 
And this is where he said, not even, not even, she said the words. She said, please, I want to give to your maidservant, she said. Give to your maidservant, God, uh, offsprings. So Ailey looks at it and says, what? You're standing in front of the Holy of Holies. There's no room to ask for anything personal, not even for children. That's also personal. And especially, as the verse said, here Basali Hispawel, she was excessively praying. She was ex- had excessive prayers going on. So when you do this, we're in the front, right in front of God's face, you making a whole simus about you, your needs, and your excessive prayers, it's looking like you're a complete drunker. Not drunk from wine. Drunk from getting carried away for your own needs. It's all about you. Right? Like you remember the joke I told you about the guy who, the, the alcoholic guy. The alcoholic, he's standing in Moscow in line at the, at the liquor store. His shirt is schmutzig, it's ripped. His pants is ripped. He's waiting in line to buy his alcohol. Somebody says to him, hello, why are you buying with your last few dollars, a bottle of alcohol. He says, what are you going to own at the end of the day if you buy a bottle of alcohol? He says, if you buy a pair of pants, a shirt, you'll at least own a complete pair of set of clothes. The guy looks at the other man, he says, you don't get it. He says, the opposite. When I buy a shirt and pants, what do I own at the end of the day? Nothing, only a shirt and pants. He said, but when I drink down that whole bottle of alcohol, he says, I own the whole Moscow. You understand? It's a perspective that when you're drunk, it seems like it's all about you. So it's not necessarily because you drank it. It's a drunken pers- pers- perspective of things. And that's where Ailey says, you're going wrong. You look like a drunker. Ad Until when are you going to be here praying like this drunk? Because I'm hearing your prayers. You're asking God to give you his maidservant all about you. In other words, Elias saying is that in your prayers, we're not noticing that you are recognizing that you're standing in front of God. In front of the Holy It's not noticeable here. Ah, So that was his accusing. But again, let's understand why we have to say his words. Because he is pointing out that you're supposed to be so spiritual. Let's take our example of Rosh Hashanah. You're supposed to be so spiritual, Rosh Hashanah, only talk about spiritual things. No, that's not a negative that you're thinking that. But Hannah comes back with the answer. And Hannah, this is the brilliance that we learn from this beautiful woman, Hannah. The purity, the, 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 the sensitivity. And she says like this, I came here for one thing. That's not about me. I'm not here because it's me. I came here to pour my heart out to God. I pour my soul out to God. Not just is her prayers for people, for children, not for herself. It's not a way of drunkenness, God forbid. It's not because I want to have kids. Why do I want, you think I want to have kids because I want to be able to say, oh, I have kids? Is that the reason to have kids? Oh, I have kids? 
she says, that's not the whole point here. It's, it's a step to something greater picture. That's why I'm asking for kids. But it's mainly about being in front of God. It's about the connection being in front of Hashem. Like we say in the Tehillim, we say every day now, Ledavid Hashemori. In that chapter 27, we say these words. We say, God, I'm asking you for one thing. Let me see your face. That's what I want. I want to see your face, Hashem. So it's not about me, it's about attaching with Hashem. So when she says these words, I'm asking something, pouring out my soul. She says, listen here, God. She says, Hashem, if you give you, if it if in the satala Hashem, if you give your maidservant this children, the entire life of this child will be given over to you, God. You will see. I will put this kid into a Jewish day school. I will bring him to synagogue. I will educate this children, this child to be devoted to you. What else is the pur- purpose here? So now when we see these words, ah, oh, this is a different story. She wanted Zerah Nasha, not because of herself. It was all about to fulfill another level of God's desire here. That she felt it internally. So now we can understand the dialogue. When we asked the three questions in the beginning, we said, how could Aliyah be so ex- have such an extreme mistake to accuse her as a drunker? We have a different perspective now. Since the whole point is spirituality, so he says to her, it's not an accusing of drunk and a negative. It's accusing her that this is not the place to pour your heart out about your personal things. You're right in front of God. So, it's a spiritual argument that they're having. So Hannah's answer back to her is, is the point of the whole Yiddishkeit. The Yiddishkeit is to have material things and ask Hashem for material things. Why? All to be able to show Hashem's greatest greatness on the whole world. And now we can understand the lesson for every single Jew when we serve Hashem in our prayers on Rosh Hashanah. It's not enough just that the internal part of a Jew should be perfect. That the, my internal intentions should be good. And when I come, therefore, when a Jew comes to Rosh Hashanah and he asks Hashem for his material needs or even spiritual needs, there's a level of the Eli HaKohen that's not just a spiritual name of some high holy person that was, that's in the, you know, that's somewhere in the books. There's an Eli HaKohen in every single one of us. The Eli HaKohen, the spiritual a voice inside you says to you, till when are you going to be drunk? Till when are you going to start thinking about your material needs on its own? Don't get carried away only on the spiritual needs. Look at the spiritual thing because we need to have the spiritual thing. We're supposed to ask for it. But as Hannah put it in her answer, that every Jew, even though now maybe for a small period of time, you're thinking about your own material things because deep inside your soul is crying out to God. As we said the part of the Baal Shem Tov, your soul is the one that's yearning. So even though it's coming out in me asking for my personal things because there's a deeper intention here. And just like Hannah answered in the answer of what she said, that everything, it answered completely Ailey's, um 
complain, his, his, his question to her, to the point now that Ailey agrees with her. And Ailey gives her a, bre- a blessing. And Ailey says, Hashem should bless you for what you asked for. That's what he says to her. So imagine that. Now that he sees her sincerity, that she's really out there, right? And she's really asking for this. Now he goes and he gives her this blessing. Hashem should give it to you. And so too, now Hashem will fulfill the requests of every Jew for a good year and a sweet year, literally in a way that you could see it with healthy children, family, health, and parnasa, and all of it in a way of revichi, meaning in a comfort way with abundance. It should just be big blessings all around.